Welcome to the MacPFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently to leading and managing your team to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work and finally to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the MacPFD Spark podcast. In this episode, we listen to Vanessa Cavalieri talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion. Topics discussed range from teaching strategies to maintain equity between students and teachers, the impact of one's upbringing on developing biases, and how to deal with your mistakes. We hope you enjoy. All right. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another amazing segment on our Mac PFD podcast. I am very, very excited and thrilled to be here today with uh, with Vanessa uh, Cavalieri um, from the School of Nursing. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to her to introduce herself, and then we'll talk about a very exciting topic today. Vanessa? Hi, everybody. My name is Vanessa Cavalieri. Um, as mentioned, I am an assistant professor at McMaster University School of Nursing. And a little bit about me is I've been a registered nurse since 2009. I'm a Mac alumni, uh, go Marauders. I've done all my education there, yeah. (laughs) Um, I have a BSCN and I also have a Master's of Science. And uh, all of my research and all of my work has pretty much been around teaching, precepting and uh, getting things going with students. So I'm really excited. That's fantastic. We're really excited to have you on, on the show today. Today's topic, we're gonna really touch on inclusivity and equity, which is a topic that's really resonating right now uh, a lot of uh, coverage in it, both in the uh, in the journals and in the news space, and wanted to dive into that in terms of how that is coming to play in nursing education and get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's definitely, it's a topic that is getting a lot of attention, and the piece that we need to harness in nursing school or any school really is how do you make it really intentional and how do you make it actionable? So where I kind of live in terms of learning about this and trying to bring it to life is figuring out what exactly does that look like for whatever group I'm in with students or or colleagues or sometimes patients even. And so, yeah, it's been a really interesting ride. I will say, um, I know your listeners can't see me, but I'm like a cisgendered. I have all of that privileged, heterosexual, white, all of those things. So it's really interesting for me to come at this topic as someone with all of the privilege that I do have and then trying to use it in a way that's helpful. And examining it from that point of view is where, where I am really focused and what I try to bring to the classroom. So yeah, that's, that's where I begin with any, any class. And that's where I've sort of landed when it comes to reviewing literature is sort of trying to pull pieces out of what can be actionable. And then what do I do with that? I think many of us have that position of privilege, right? And, and many of us who are teachers and faculty have have you know all overcome challenges and made it to where we are, but many of us now enjoy positions of power and privilege. And so, how do we use that when we're looking at this with our students in a way to maintain that equity in our interactions with them? And, and what does that look like, practically speaking, for our faculty? Exactly. Do you have any strategies that you like to use or employ when you're when you're teaching um, that allow you to kind of move past some of those pieces? Yes, I have developed what I call like first day, first minute type strategies. So it's one of those things where 
we meet each other and then I go directly into this content before I get into anything about the course that it, we're teaching or any of the, you know, first day of a class, a lot of time is usually spent in orientation to assignments or evaluations, but I have um, a list essentially of things that I do. And yeah, a couple of the strategies I'll go through first day, first minute strategies. The very first thing is I always will state welcome, all are welcome. And I say, my name is Vanessa. My preferred pronouns are she and her. And I talk about why I give pronouns and I make sure that everybody feels safe. If they would like to share pronouns, that's fine. If not, that's also fine. But I explain why it's really important as a gesture of inclusivity. I talk about how I have an authentic appreciation of things like diverse cultures, race, religions, language, just all of the things that kind of brought you to where you are, are really appreciated by me sincerely. I talk about how there's absolutely no judgment in terms of that we all know there's a spectrum of sexuality and gender and wherever you fall, all is good. I talk about how I have no judgment about things about socioeconomic status or other social determinants of health that might have impacted how you landed in university, how long it took, all of those things. I make sure to talk about that we don't or I don't judge capacity or ability. And I make sure to distinguish like, yes, I evaluate you as an instructor, as a, as a prof, but in terms of things like if you have an accommodation or you have different needs, that's all good. I don't judge appearance. I always make jokes with my, my students because I have like very premature gray hair, which when I was younger was horrifying. But now that I'm a bit older, it's like I've leaned into, but I talk about appearance again, like express yourself, please feel free to do that. And there's no judgment on my end of, of how you choose to come to class and what you look like. Um, I do talk about age and generations because I find my students stay the same age, but I get older. And so as that gap widens, I have to really be clear. Like, I think Gen Z is awesome. And here are the strengths I feel like you bring to our profession and where I think we can really harness your platforms and like mesh with mine. Uh, I talk about resources. Like I just right off the bat say, here's what our campus offers in terms of equity, diversity, inclusivity, accessibility, and sustainability, uh, accommodation resources, where, that, where you can find them. And then the last thing I do is really just say, what I would like to do, the goal is be a safe person in your journey. Like as you come through this program, you're gonna meet a lot of different faculty. I would like to be a safe person. And what that means to me is one, all of the things I just said are true. And then also, if I mess up, please feel free to tell me that. So I have this frank conversation where yes, there's going to be ouch moments. No one person is an expert in how to be inclusive or embrace diversity or make sure things are accessible. And I, I really want my students at the end of the day to feel comfortable telling me when I've, you know, for lack of a better term, messed it up. Um, and that might be a little bit of an ouch moment, but it's also, if you feel comfortable telling me that, then, then the safe space is sort of already there. And then I can move forward. And then I think the last thing is I always, one of my main things, I think my students will probably echo this. I say this a lot is I always want to meet you where you are. So I, we talked right at the beginning about how there's that authority and power. And I really approach my students like there isn't. Yes, I've been a nurse longer. There's lots of things that you know better than me. There's lots of things that you do better than me. And in this one particular area for this one particular chunk of time, Maybe I'm an expert compared to where you are today, but that certainly is a fluid state. And I would much rather be seen as like a partner in their learning. So those are my very explicit, this is all about me. This is how I feel about it. This is how I hope you can feel about it as well. 
And then I also, at the end of that kind of my intro is um, just making sure you don't have to share those things either, right? Like making sure that, yes, I'm non-judgmental of all of the things I listed, but you also don't need to open up with your intro to the class and share these intimate details. It's just one of those things like you could. So those are, those are my really explicit strategies. Yeah, I like how you're, you're really leveling that playing field early on and, and sharing some things about yourself as well as, as making it known that these are areas that are uh, things that you'll be cognizant of and, and aware of and, and creating a little bit of that um, openness to discuss it, right? Because sometimes I think that's a challenging position when you take a new course, when you're interacting with a student for the first time and they're in that supervisory or direct role, um, there is a bit of pressure that comes with that for the, for the learners, right? And especially if they're already feeling like they are not included in that environment or, or feel like they have, like you mentioned, accommodations or things that they're worried that that, that faculty see. I, I think many students, when they come into those rotations, almost feel like they're, that everyone is aware of the things that make them different or make them kind of have an accommodation or something like that, even though that may not be true, right? That may not have been conferred to the faculty who are directly in front of you. Sometimes as a student, it feels like everybody knows and, and you're watching. And so I really like how you level that. How do you find that students respond to that, like that type of intro? What sort of responses do you get? I'm curious, because that, that's a nice long kind of intro, intro there. And, and I'm curious how students respond. Generally, really positively. I also, I should have mentioned, I accompanied this intro with a slide even if it's in an in-person class, there's a big slide and it's got pictures of me um, and my family. So I have a husband and we have a son. And then I have a picture of me like all dolled up to work in scrubs and then also teaching. And I've got like little pictures of certain interests of mine just to sort of hook them into like, yeah, I'm a real person with interest outside of nursing. It's something that's come up in a lot of our informal and formal evaluations when students have a chance to give feedback about their, their tutor or their instructor. Uh, yeah, they like it about me. I, it's gotten positive feedback. I think it's something that's gone from being a bit extra to now being something that when we lean into the conversation, a lot of people kind of come to, into my class and they're like, oh, is today the day we get to see the slide? So I think it's it's becoming more normal. And I've had many students, the pronoun one is one that stands out where people will say, you know, like a lot of people do share pronouns or have them on their e email or their Zoom, but not everybody will say it in front of a class. And that's becoming more and more normalized and more and more frequent. But I've been doing that for a long time. And I've had a few students who have said, like, you know, this is the first time I felt comfortable um, identifying that I would prefer they, them pronouns, for example, or that I'm a non-binary student. And that feedback is really what makes it worth it, because then it just feels like you made that space really safe, which is my ultimate goal. Yeah, and I think it's it's humanizing too, right? I think that sometimes when we meet students for the first time and we just dive right into the, the content. We kind of ignore their experience that brought them there. And I think in healthcare professions, especially as we see the impact of like the pandemic on so many um, different healthcare providers, the amount of burnout, right, that's there, especially in nursing, right, frontline in the pandemic through, through this, this, this time period. I think that the humanity that we share and, and leaning into the idea that we are people with diverse interests and um, backgrounds and families and, and kind of getting a, getting to know your students a little bit more like that. I, I do feel like, you know, in my own learning experience, I feel like the faculty who I gravitated towards are the ones who kind of let you into that piece of their lives, right? Because then it humanizes a little bit, makes makes you seem a little bit more fallible and, and then creates that open space for, for conversations. Um, when, when you've had those kind of conversations with students, how, how do you support them in the moment there? What do you, what do you kind of do once you've established that safe, that safe space? How do you kind of take the conversation 
um, into the next level, let's say on serial encounters or other classes, or, or if students do approach you with concerns of, of how they've been treated in the educational space? Yeah, that's a really good question. In terms of the serial encounter, what's nice about our program is that we have them for a pretty good chunk of time. So there is ability to sort of scaffold and if it's too much all at once, we can sort of tie it in and I can revisit this topic. And it's also really nice because I teach all of the streams, all of the levels, which brings me into contact with students, with patients, students with students, and then students individually. And I just scaffold kind of as needed with where each person is. If there's an issue, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, this is something that's happened to me in the past that made me feel uncomfortable or made me feel that I couldn't share this one thing. It's really just one of those things where I'll say, okay, tell me what you feel comfortable with. What can I do to meet you and, and meet that need? I can't, I mean, there's lots of resources where I can say, okay, we have, and we do, McMaster has tons of resources that are available for students to sort of do the more formal if they needed to report something, for example, or wanted to look at a specific policy. If that's the sort of, sort of issue they're in, then they're in that kind of realm. But when it's just one of those things where it's a one-to-one, um, I'm totally willing to be called out if I'm the person that caused the harm. And if not, I'm just willing to listen to the story and learn from it. And that's, that's usually what I say is just, what can I learn from this? And students love to tell you, not that they want you to be the one that's learning, but I think having the, like you said, like seeing you as someone who is fallible, someone who's approachable, someone who's willing to learn from them goes a long way. So I, that's how I approach it. It's always just been a very authentic conversation. I think as faculty too, I think we sometimes underemphasize how much we learn from students. You know, it really oh. resonated to me what you're saying about like, oftentimes students know more about the topic than I do, especially in a clinical setting, because they're the ones reviewing it, right? Like, especially when you get your senior level trainees who are just about to write their exams or just about to enter practice, like they're literally reviewing that content day by day um, and studying to a much larger extent than many of us as faculty continue <laughs> to do, right? It, it's hard to stay a, a, on top of the literature in the same way when you're, when you're teaching, right? And so I think acknowledging that we have a lot to learn from our students as well is, is adds to the richness of that interaction and creates more of uh, a playing field that's leveled between us and also creates more bi-directional exchange, right? It creates opportunities for both of us to kind of share and grow as people. It's funny that you mentioned that. One of the things that I do, and again, this might be seen, make me seem a bit extra, but I'm a really big fan of Harry Potter. And I will say, I do not support JK Rowling in any of the things that she's posted. And we've learned now that she's not the best person. However, I can't lie, I'm still a fan of the books. So I tend to sort my students into houses, especially in classes where they need to be in small groups. And then at the end of the term, I'll say, okay, like house cup. And you'll see them all sort of straighten up and be like, ooh, I wonder if my group is the winner. And at the end, inevitably the winner is me and I'll put up a picture of me and I kind of look like Dumbledore. So I'll say, you know, I've won the house cup this year and let me tell you why. And at first I think they're like, are you a bit of a narcissist because you're awarding <laughs> the cup to yourself? But then I explain, and I'm very specific about, these are the things I learned from you. And whichever level it is, whatever stream it is, whatever course it is, I'm 100% sincere when I say that I have learned something that has impacted my practice, whether it's teaching or clinical. Sometimes big things that students say, you know this, and I'm like, I have been a nurse for a long time and I didn't know that and thank you for sharing. And that piece usually lands pretty well um, especially because by that point in the term, they know I mean it. Like I really go out of my way to make sure that you know I mean this. So when I say like, you know, thank you so much for teaching me this fact about whatever, or helping me like refine my own assessment about 
whatever, because you're right, they're in these very specialized placements that sometimes I've never been in. So you're often playing catch up when your student's like, I'm doing nephro. And I'm like, well, my background is not nephro. So let me do a little bit of research on kidneys. Like they know more than me and that's okay. And I think that's, that's a wonderful part about teaching. That's actually one of the biggest rewards of being in these roles is just like the, the amount that my mind expands every day that I go to work is really, really cool. I love that idea, especially the fact that you gave yourself a cup. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna totally steal it and just give myself an award every block, right? <laughs> Honestly, it's it's good for the self-esteem. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're like I won. <laughs> how do you how do you adapt um, these type of interactions for when you're when you're working with students in a clinical space? Because with you know kind of the more core space things, you have that opportunity to build a relationship and rapport over time. You have that opportunity to really set the stage and the standard for your class. How do you handle that when you're when you're dealing with someone on a more shift to shift basis or someone where you're supervising in a clinical setting? Um, perhaps you're only supervising them for a shorter period of time, let's say a shift or a week or something like that. How do you adapt this conversation to those uh, to those settings? So those settings, as we both know, are a little bit more hectic and a little bit more stressful, and we have a lot less control. However, I still have a chance to orient with my students before we go into the setting. So this conversation can still happen. And then what ends up happening is we end up flipping it and applying it to patients as well. So it's a, it's a nice way to say like, this is all the things I believe about how we should approach students. How do you feel about approaching your patient? And a lot of the same concepts will apply, especially being person-centered and you know using pronouns or, or knowing different stories and valuing those stories instead of judging them. So it's almost one of those, those areas where you can take it from theory to practice actually quite easily because you're just flipping it and saying, this is how I've approached you. And now this is how I think we could approach this patient. And then you can encourage reflection as well. If a student is dealing with a patient with a, some sort of situation they've never seen before and that requires some debrief and some, some reflection, all of those concepts really work well to highlight and help them debrief on, on stuff that they might not have thought of before. So I find it challenging sometimes when it's chaotic and trying to make them feel safe when they're learning a clinical skill or the unit is crazy and things have happened and we're just moving at a fast pace. That's challenging because sometimes I'm sure you've seen this where it's just like, we have to go, like we need to do this. There's tasks to get done. We're very, very time. These things are time sensitive or, you know, your patient has needs that we need to attend to right this minute. That is hard. And usually I just explain, like, you may see me be a little bit more firm or a little bit more strict about, hey, we're going to do this right now. And then later, we always will have the chance to take it down and take a breath and then like decompress it afterwards. So yeah, I do. I like that we can apply it to patients. I do sometimes feel that, especially when things go, you know, downhill quickly and a student's like, I want to get in there, but I'm not sure what to do. And everybody around you is like, well, we do know what to do and we need to get in there. Sometimes afterwards, I'll have to take them aside and say, okay, so this is why this went down this way. How are you feeling? How are you feeling about the way you were treated? And we, we go through those types of conversations as well. Yeah, I think the debrief in clinical settings is really important because you don't always have time for as much of the pre-brief, right? You don't have as much time to, to sit with the learner and really dive into all of those elements. And sometimes it's it's like snippets of a conversation with them. But I, I love your, your tip around um, using those patient interactions to guide those conversations because it was kind of eye-opening to me in the, in the COVID pandemic to see the number of patients who brought up issues of discrimination and how they felt that they were treated by the healthcare system. And, and I think a lot of those pieces were magnified 
um, because of the stress of the uh, of the system kind of collapsing under the weight of this, right? And, and you started to really hear from patients about their experience um, and, and how they sometimes felt judged for their choices or their decisions, right? And, and how those are sometimes more complex than they initially appear. And so getting into those conversations with individuals with your student in tow can actually be really powerful because then they start to hear and humanize and understand those stories and taking that moment afterwards to debrief that and be like, Here's an example of where, you know, that equity element of the healthcare system was actually really challenged, right? And, and this person is having difficulty accessing care, accessing resources, and, and we see all of the usual social determinants of health just totally magnified, right, in, in these circumstances. And, and when we're able to, to create real examples for our trainees, I think that that resonates so much more with them. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> What are, um, what are some ways that faculty can, can integrate evidence-based policies in, in how they're developing rotations? Because that's a, a challenge sometimes. You know, sometimes faculty may feel like they're not sure where to start or where to go. And you've given us some great tips for as you're kind of leading a course or leading a, a student through a rotation. When we're starting to design um, courses, how can we maintain that lens so that we're not, like we talked about at the beginning, just kind of leveraging our position of power or privilege? I think it's going to start like anything. We start small and build bigger. Um, for example, I've given a faculty development uh, talk on this exact topic before. I've spoken at a few universities. And I think it's more just a sharing of information and building off each other's ideas that is the most helpful because all of this stuff is not always going to look the same. And so I think one of those, you know, a policy that really lays out the do's and don'ts in terms of this would be considered harassment or discrimination or just completely inappropriate. That exists already. And most people are aware of those hard lines, but the creation of a safe space or the language, um, a language awareness kind of movement and choosing your words carefully, those, I don't know that a policy would even be the answer as much as it would be to connect with people and have people share stories and meet people who are experts on different aspects of this. I'm really big into inclusivity. Other people are far more knowledgeable than me on diversity or equity. And if voices come together, I think that's how you learn. And then in terms of putting into practice, it really is like anything else. It's practice. A lot of these things are a little bit uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people to step into. And I know even people in my personal life, when I, I have, I have a six-year-old, so sometimes language that's used around him just by our friends, or I'll say like, just let's pause that for a minute and back up and I'll take a second to explain to my son, like, you know, we could have worded that differently. And that's where we are. All of us are there at some point or another, we all make mistakes. And I think it's really just now, okay, that was something I don't want to do again. I'm going to make myself like a policy, if you will, for next time, I won't do this. That's where I think the best learning will come. And because I'm a nurse, I do believe that experiential learning is the way to go. So my, I would really recommend like the more people that have this talk and, and share with each other, the better moving forward. And how do faculty examine their own, their own language and their own biases, right? Because I think, you know, you mentioned you're, you're in opportunities where students feel comfortable sharing with you, but sometimes the interactions we have with students, there isn't that opportunity to kind of get that feedback in real time, right? For example, if we're episodically doing lectures in a series or supervising a, a trainee for a short period of time, we don't necessarily have that opportunity to get that feedback. So how do we, as faculty, examine the language that we're using and the biases that we're bringing to the table? Are there any strategies that we could, we could take away for that? 
one of my biggest strategies is reflection, but that is really putting the onus on the individual. I've done a lot of work on, for example, I think I just mentioned the language awareness and language matters movement. And I've done a lot of work on, I have a list, an actual list that's in front of me, regardless of where I'm teaching of just mistakes I made in the past and how I would like to rephrase it. I think all of us need to have a list. So maybe mentally, maybe in front of you, maybe an ongoing, just like reflective thought that you do in terms of how am I making people feel included? And in terms of examining biases, that is something, it's such an, it's an old concept. I think all of us were taught that when we trained, right? Whether it's med school or nursing school or anywhere in health sciences about you need to reflect on your own biases in order to deliver really patient-centered safe care. And it's something theoretically we all know that we should be doing, but it's escalated now because before what that used to mean was, you know, if you had a patient who struggled with misuse of a substance, thinking about, okay, how do I feel about that? And then how am I going to treat this patient? We are moving into bigger and more complex realms in terms of things like gender or sexuality or accommodations and capacity and ability. And all of those things, I think it's it's not only examining your bias, but maybe even more than that, thinking about why do I feel that way? And then how am I actively going to combat that? Because the thing about bias is it's not going to go away. It's really rooted in how you were raised, you know, what your caregivers or like we like to say you're grownups because not everybody has parents. So whoever it was that raised you and really influenced you, there's so many ideas that are passed down and so many ways of thinking that are passed down that we don't even know are there. And you're not going to undo them a lot of the time. And that's another thing that that's okay, but it's, I know it's there now and I need to work around it and really be mindful about language or mindful about my actions or my thoughts. That's, that's where I think it has to land for now. I think that's interesting too, because I think our understanding of this area has evolved so much too, right? And it used to be, you know, you had kind of phrasing that was obviously derogatory or obviously discriminatory. And now I think we're being more and more aware that even things that are said um, in a, in a not, un, uh, not in a malintentioned manner, right? So people are saying things that they don't mean to be uh, non-inclusive or, or, or discriminatory are coming across as that. And I think that that awareness of what we bring to the table from our past experiences and how that may influence how we shape our conversations, how we shape our interactions, how those may actually be uh, uh, not only offensive for individuals, but may actually make them feel less included. And if we're creating those spaces in the healthcare system amongst our healthcare workers, right, then that uh, is magnified when we're talking about patients, right? Because at least as a healthcare worker, they, when they're finished, our trainees will have that, that status, right? As a nurse, as a physician, as a RT or whatever area they're in, in the healthcare system, they're going to still carry that privilege that comes with that, right? But for our patients who are entering it with those things, they don't have that. Yeah, I think it's, it's also almost one of those things that if you can make a few changes that become habitual and learn, because I'll give you an example, or I can give you a couple actually, in terms of things I've learned that I don't want to say anymore, but that are just a bad habit. The the most frequent one that I use is the term, Hey guys, or you Mm -hmm. guys. Yeah. I use it all the time with my groups, with my classes. I mean, even thinking it back today, I was teaching earlier and I said, you guys did great. I, I mean, it's a gender term. It just is. And it's been in my vocabulary for, you know, however many years that I've been speaking, that it's really difficult 
to undo. But every time I say it, I have the red flag in my head go up and it's like, that's not what I meant to say. And that's what I followed up with. That's not what I meant to say. I meant to say everyone. And there's, there's other tips that I've picked up. One of the best ones in terms of just being mindful of your own, maybe common mistakes that you make unintentioned, like you said, is knowing, first of all, that any space that you're in with, with another person is inherently diverse because that person's not you, but that could be invisible. It's not always going to be an obvious, this person is different from me because, because they're a different gender or they're a different race. Sometimes there's an invisible difference and you may never know that it exists, but your language should always honor the invisible differences. So some of the examples, hey guys, is one of them where you may not know someone in your group or your your, your group of students or your patient does identify as a gender that they don't appear as. You might never know that. They don't have to tell you that, but you probably want to avoid using gendered language anyway. Another really common one is, do you have a husband? Often people will ask me that. And it's like, with that question, which is meant in a totally harmless way, you're assuming one, that I'm heterosexual and you're assuming that I'm cisgendered and attracted to cisgendered individuals. Like it's just, it's very gendering and it, it could make me feel very offended or excluded if I wasn't married to somebody who was also cishet, excuse me. So instead of that, it's easy to say, well, do you have a partner, right? Like that's one of the things that I have really tried to change. Just those little questions that you're sometimes even using in a way, I want to get to know you. And then you accidentally exclude somebody. Or the parent example that I gave earlier, have you spoken to your parents about this problem? And then, you know, what if that person's like, I don't have parents, but they don't want to tell you that. Um, I've also run into it. Um, this isn't something I've personally said, but I've heard it said before and students have brought it up as other students to each other. They'll say, oh, well, did she stutter? And it's like, well, that's not appropriate because what if somebody in here had a stutter growing up or still struggles with a stutter? Other ones are... Um, oh, that was a tone deaf thing to say. It's like, well, that's pretty ableist. So you have to really, some of that might be common because you grew up saying it or hearing it and now it's time to unlearn and correct yourself. And like I said, I, I have a literal physical list <laughs> of all the mistakes I've made in the past or just things people have told me like that wouldn't be acceptable. And it's it's in my back pocket as a tool. That, that's great. I, I feel like the, the strategies that you shared with us today you know, that ability to have and open the conversation with, with something about yourself and creating that safe psychological space and, and space of inclusion is really important. Uh, we talked about a lot about language and a lot about how we can be in, intelligent and thoughtful about how we're interacting with both patients and other healthcare workers um, and, and some strategies there to reflect on our own behaviors and our own biases. I think these are all really great takeaway for our faculty. Um, before we wrap up, do you have any other things that you wanted to cover in this area or anything else you wanted to leave our listeners with? I would like to leave you with the idea that when it comes to this particular topic, you are going to make a mistake. It's totally okay to make the mistake. The trick is owning it. So can I just briefly just give you my three tips on what to do if you've fallen into the, the ouch moment? That's great. Firstly, That'd be awesome. yeah. The first kind of mistake that you may make is one that you know, as soon as it comes out of your mouth, you'll say, ooh, like the hey guys example. That's not what I meant to say. In my experience, what I found the best way to, it's called an ouch moment for a reason, meaning that it will hurt, but you can take it from ouch, hopefully not further, right? Like we can stop it at a, as a small ouch instead of making it this actual harm. So the first one would be stop yourself, correct it. 
that's like the example I gave before. That's not what I meant to say. I meant this. The second type of mistake is you say something and then you're like, was that okay? Not really sure. Maybe clarify. That's I found that when you're authentic and you say, you know what, was that an okay thing for me to say? I'm not sure. That authenticity really goes a long way. And I've had, that's how I've learned the list I was referring to. Most of that, they, those things on the list come from students being like, nope, that wasn't okay. But they always say, thank you for asking. And the only advice I would have with that category is the like asking or clarifying is it's never somebody else's responsibility to educate you. So I, you can't put the whole onus on someone else to say, well, why wasn't that okay? But you can say, thanks for letting me know. And then you go home and you research it. You look it up, you find somebody that is an expert. And, you know, I've connected with lots of people who are willing to take some time just to be like, yep, this is why you don't want to say that thing. And then you don't say it again. You move forward with it as part of your list and you try to do better. And then the third one is you've made a mistake and you don't know. And that that's harder. That's, you know, things like a microaggression or you've misgendered or even something simple like you've mispronounced somebody's name. And for whatever reason, no one has told you, or you're just finding out about finding out about it later somehow, is uh, doing a lot of reflection on why did I keep saying that? Why did I keep doing that? How do I learn or unlearn? And then how do I begin integrating moving forward? So that's what I would leave you with is, yes, you will mess it up. Everybody does. You may have the best of intentions, and I'd like to think most of us do. But yeah, if you have a mistake, I think it's just really important to, we can't hide and we're past that. It's 2022. It's not okay now to be like, oh, I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen. Nope. Instead, just get out in front of it and say, you know what? I messed that up. But my goal is to make you feel safe. Clearly that wasn't it. How do I do, how do I make that better for next time? That's great. So, so when we make that inevitable mistake, we can acknowledge we can clarify if we weren't sure if this may have offended someone, um, and then we can uh, undergo that process of reflection, right? And we can really think about, you know, what are the elements of our practice that we're carrying forward and, and modifying that behavior uh, for future students. Thanks. Exactly. This has been a, an amazing conversation and really enjoyed uh, hearing your perspectives on this and, and you bringing all the evidence to the forefront for our faculty. So thanks so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.